Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the season of Lent, we are doing a sermon series called The Footsteps of Jesus. The goal of this series is to explore how each of the steps or stages in Jesus's ministry are aspects of our own journey as Christians that we need to mirror in our lives. I hope you enjoy. Let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading from Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture today is from Matthew 14. It's literally a continuation of what we were reading uh, previously. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, had battered, the, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on to the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The word of the Lord. So we're doing our sermon series, right, The Footsteps of Jesus During Lent. And this series is based on the idea that we are looking at the various stages or steps in Jesus' ministry, and we are asking the question, what does Jesus do in this very stage, and how should we be mirroring that in our own lives as Christians? So last week, we talked about step five in Jesus' ministry, his parables. And if you remember, we went through a bunch of different parables, and they were all talking about the same thing, the kingdom of God. Now, what I explained to you in that sermon is that they look at the kingdom of God in two different ways. The first way you can look at it is the way the ancient Jews understood God's kingdom, which is that God's going to come to earth, 
literally merge heaven and earth together as one, and God's going to be here among us. Or you can look at it the way that Jesus talks about it, and Jesus describes it as God creates God's kingdom through us, through our hands and feet, bringing it into the world. And so in this way, something that feels very impossible, God coming to earth, becomes a possibility, right? If we look at it through Jesus's point of view. So this idea here is that we're going to be looking today again in the same vein at the idea of the impossible becoming possible as we look at Jesus's miracles. This is step six in Jesus's ministry. So today, before we jump into the miracles themselves, I want to take a moment to define what is a miracle, because that's actually important for us. So a miracle is an event that is unexpected but welcome that cannot be explained by natural or scientific laws. So therefore, in lieu of a rational or reasonable explanation, we would sit there and we would say that it is the result of divine intervention. God literally intervened in the world and changed the natural course of events. Yeah, does that feel about right? Miracle? Yeah? Good? Okay. Okay, it's okay. <laughs> you can talk to me a little bit, okay? So, the first miracle we looked at, we looked at basically three miracles in two different stories. The first miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. You familiar with this story or generally have you heard it before, right? We've read it a number of times in church, um, but if this is the first time, not too much to it, right? So basically what happens is Jesus comes off a boat, he's healing people, and he does this all day, and the sun begins to go down. And the disciples go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I know you're doing all this good stuff, but maybe you want to send these people back home so they can get some food. And Jesus looks at them and he says it, and I like the way you said it because I think that's right on, you feed them. And they sit there and they say, ah, can't do that. We don't have enough food. We have five loaves of bread and two fish or sardines, if you will. And so Jesus takes this food that they have and inexplicably he is able to produce enough food from this to feed 5,000 people with food, generally speaking, left over. Now, the way this story is described, the way that it kind of looks in the scripture, this is not something that you can explain through scientific or natural law, right? I mean, you can't. If, it's the way that, if it happened the way that they said it, that fits into the category of miracle. Would you agree? Yes. Okay, absolutely. All right. Next story. So, it's a continuation. Remember, the sun's going down, so what? It's about to be night. And so the disciples, they're all tired, and they decide, you know what? We're going to go out and we're going to get some sleep. So they push off into the water. They're fishermen. They're used to sleeping on the lake. What you have to understand about the Lake of Galilee, though, this is very important, is that it actually has its own weather system because the lake abuts up against mountains. And so the weather can change very, very quickly on the Lake of Galilee. So they're out there and what happens is a storm comes, it threatens to capsize their boat. And so they're trying to keep it together. And so what happens? Jesus does what? He walks out to them on water. Now, thinking that he's an apparition, they call out to him and Peter says, hey, if it's you, Lord, command me to come onto the water. Now, why does he do that? This is actually really interesting. He does it because of what we talked about in the first sermon that I talked about in this series, Disciples, where you're trying to do what your rabbi does. Remember how we talked about that? He's trying to do what his rabbi does. He says, hey, call, if you're the real deal, do, I want to do what you do. So he goes out and he walks, but then what happens? He starts to sink. Jesus comes over to him. He saves him, puts him in the boat, tells the storm to cease. Okay, again, 
way this is written, right, we have a person who's walking on water. That doesn't normally happen, right? Maybe it does, I don't know, right? Doesn't normally happen. And a person who can control the weather, right? Okay. So again, does this fall into the category of miracle? Yes, yes it does. Okay. Now, here's the issue with it. The issue is that these stories don't entirely jive with our modern rationalist sentiments, right? The way that most of us think today. For a lot of people in our modern world, when they read this story or these stories, they sit there and they say, it feels just too fantastical. It's just one step too far over the line of what feels possible. Now, I know that there's some of you in here who feel that way, and there's some of you in here who don't. And if you do feel that way, if you feel that it's one step too far over, I don't want you to dismiss these stories as having no value. Because these stories are actually really important for us to understand how these ancient people thought about Jesus and what Jesus expects from us. So can we do something, a little, little exercise for a moment here? Let's read this story or think about this story from the perspective of the ancient people who would have been reading it, okay? So what that means is you've got to set aside everything you know about science, gone, right? They didn't know any of that. You've got to set aside everything you know about the universe. Gone, right? Now, we read the story. And you're looking at Jesus. And what is he doing? He's taking loaves and fish and he multiplies them out. Now, that's a feat that is normally what? Reserved for who? God, right? God creates the food we, make, we eat. Okay, next thing. You have a guy who's controlling the weather. Who controls the weather from their vantage point? Who's responsible for that? God. Okay, now, he's doing things that are only reserved for God. So what does this tell you as an ancient person? What does this tell you? That this guy, is this guy a normal guy? Oh no, there is something very, very special about him because he can do these things. So it indicates to you he is not like everyone else. That's very important. Now, in our modern world, because of the way we think of science, we tend to get caught up in the question of whether this did or did not happen. You'll, I've, you'll sit there and you'll debate it. I remember being in college, and in college you sit here and you debate with your friends. I don't know, did it happen, didn't it? I don't think that's really the point. The point in my mind is that if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are going to be called on to do things that feel impossible. You're going to be called on by Jesus to do things that seemingly can't be done. You're going to be called on to feed 5,000 people. You weren't prepared for that. You don't have the resources to do it, but you've got to find a way to make it happen. You're going to be called on to walk on water. And you sit there and you say, can't be done. Nobody can walk on water. It's impossible. But guess what? You've got to find a way. Because that's how you create God's kingdom. You have to make the impossible become possible. And the beauty of these stories is that they tell us that when we do that, when we go from the impossible to the possible, that God is going to be there with us along the way. And God is going to guide us along the way. Yes? Yes. yes. Now, one of the most important ways that Jesus tells us one of the biggest miracles we have to produce when creating God's kingdom is the healing of disease. Jesus tells us, right, that when you're in God's kingdom, you have to be able to make sure that everybody is healed from their illnesses. This is something he talks about. Now, a couple weeks ago, I actually preached a sermon specifically on the healing of disease, what Jesus did when he healed. And what I told you is that Jesus is our model of how we are supposed to heal in the world, right? And what does he do? Jesus focuses on healing who? The 
the poor, right? That's who he focused on. And so that's the model for what we need to be doing as Christians. We need to be focused on healing the poor, which in our modern world means that we need to make sure that people who cannot afford good health insurance get good health care, right? That's our job. We have to provide good health care for them. So what I talked about, and I'm just saying this again so we're all on the same page, is that I discussed the idea of how when we redo this part of our building, right, because we're starting here, we're redoing part of it, that, uh, that one thing that we should think about doing is installing a free clinic in our building. And if we were to do that, it's a possibility. We have all these people. We have nurses. We have dietitians. We have doctors. We have people here who have these skills who could give up their time and who we could actually serve the poor in our community who cannot afford to get good health care for themselves. A possibility, but I don't know if we can do it. We have to see if we can raise the money, but it's a, I think it's an interesting idea. If you weren't here for that, go back and listen to that sermon. I can flesh, you, you'll hear more about it at that point. I can't talk about it right now. But the whole point is, is that I think this is something we should think about. So God tells us we need to create a world where no one suffers unduly from illness. And what's amazing to me is that today, within the last 10 years, we have gotten very, very close. We are on the cusp of that impossible miracle becoming a reality in our world. So in 2011, a researcher from the University of California, her name is Jennifer Dudna, and Emmanuel Charpentier, they are from the University of Umea in Sweden. These two ladies got together and they started doing experiments on bacteria. Now to understand what it was that they were doing, you have to understand how bacteria defends itself from disease. So when we get infected with a virus, what happens is we have white blood cells that attack that virus to try to prevent it from overtaking your immune system. Bacteria is a much simpler form of life. They do not have white blood cells, they have enzymes. So what happens is when a virus attacks a bacteria like this, the bacteria releases an enzyme to try to kill off the virus. If it's successful, it does something very, very interesting, which is the bacteria will make a copy of the genetic code of the virus, the RNA of the virus, so that if the virus returns, it knows what it is. So does that make sense what I'm saying so far? It's made a copy of the code, it has it in there. So what happens is, let's say the bacteria is going along, the virus comes back, tries to attack it. So it's made a copy of this code, and it's sending out the enzymes, and it's trying to fight back, and it's like, hey, do I know what this virus is? And if it knows what the virus is, the enzyme latches on to the genetic code of the virus, the RNA, and splits it apart, chops it up, rendering the virus unusable. Basically, it just destroys the virus. So, Dudna and Charpentier wondered, could they reverse engineer this system so that you could actually take out pieces of undesirable DNA and insert desirable pieces of DNA? And the system that they developed is called CRISPR. And CRISPR has been used in very effective ways to modify genetic code. So I want to show you a quick video, and this video is going to show you how scientists are using CRISPR right now to try to remove malaria from mosquitoes. So let's take a look at this real quick. 
These mosquito larvae in a lab at Imperial College in London have been genetically engineered to glow red under a laser. But that red fluorescence is just a marker. It's there to tell the researchers that something profound has happened. I ran out and I grabbed my supervisor and I was like, Tony, you, you, you know, you've got to look at this. So we started going through and I read them off one by one. I was like, red, 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 red. And we just, uh, it was a very crazy time. We just started screaming and getting super excited. Since only one of their parents had a copy of the red gene, you'd expect around 50% of the larvae to be red, but nearly 100% of them were glowing. The researchers had hacked the rules of inheritance with what's called a gene drive. But the red gene isn't the point. It's been linked to a genetic tool that renders female mosquitoes infertile. And that's a huge deal because this isn't just any old mosquito species. This is Anopheles gambi, one of the mosquitoes that carries the parasite that causes malaria. While researchers continue to work on a vaccine, genetic approaches to malaria look increasingly promising. The idea of driving desirable genes into insect populations dates back decades. But progress toward that goal jumped ahead after the invention of the CRISPR gene editing tool in 2012. CRISPR allows scientists to make precise changes to DNA in the lab. A CRISPR gene drive could let them push those changes through a wild population of insects. It works by inserting the gene editing tool itself into a chosen segment of the mosquito's DNA. From there, CRISPR induces the cell to copy the package onto the matching chromosome. Like us, mosquitoes have two copies of each gene, one from each parent. And now that the gene drive is on both chromosomes, it will get passed on to all the offspring, where it will copy onto their other chromosome, and so on. So depending on what biologists attach to that package, like the red fluorescent gene, they can make some drastic changes to wild populations. So the idea is that if they can change the way that these mosquitoes reproduce, then they can effectively get rid of malaria in the world. Amazing thing, right? All right. So here's the interesting thing about this, is that you, can't, you can use it on mosquitoes, but you can also use this technology on us. And so in the next 10 years, it is expected that the CRISPR system will be refined enough that they will be able to remove certain genetic diseases from our genome. So for instance, they expect that they will be able to edit our genes so that you can get rid of things like sickle cell anemia, cystic fibrosis. You can get rid of type 1 diabetes and Huntington's disease, which I think we all agree, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, if you can remove those things from our genome, then you're basically curing these diseases that have haunted people for a long time. Now, the cool thing about this, too, is that, like the malaria in mosquitoes, is that once you take it out of a person, it's gone. Like, it doesn't get passed on from the, to the next generation. Now, that's the first application of CRISPR. Second application of CRISPR that they're looking at, and this is going to be a lot longer than 10 years, is using it to fight cancer. So here's the way that it would work. Essentially what would happen is you go to the doctor. Doctor diagnoses you with cancer. They say you got, the, you got this cancer cell. They take the cancer and they get a genetic readout of the cancer cells. They feed this into the CRISPR system and then what happens is they create a medicine just for you that gets implanted into your body and it literally finds every single cell that has this DNA pattern, slices it apart, destroys it. So no longer do you have to get 
chemotherapy, harmful radiation, that's all gone. Now, you get the shot, right? They insert the medicine, they do it, and then it takes care of it for you over a matter of weeks. Again, I think we would all agree, right? That's probably a good thing. If we can do that, that would be excellent. That would be an amazing leap forward. Now, the final application of CRISPR, the one that's very scary to people, though, is that this technology can be used to alter genes that have nothing to do with disease. So, theoretically, CRISPR can be used to alter genes that affect the color of your eyes, the pigmentation of your skin, the density of your muscle fiber, the size of your hands and your feet, your body fat ratio, whether you're 5'5 or 6'9, and even the IQ in your brain. And lest you think that this is science fiction, those things that I'm talking about, in 2017, a group of scientists from Europe and America released a study where they looked at the DNA of 78,000 people, and they found a direct link between 52 specific genes and intelligence. Theoretically, you could use the CRISPR system to insert those 52 specific genes into a person. And assuming that it was safe and there were no side effects, the only limitation to such an enhancement would be money. So, if you can afford to have these genetic alterations done, not only can you be disease-free, but you can create a human being that is incredibly athletic, agile, intelligent, and beautiful. Now, when you think about that, it doesn't take very much for you to jump ahead and realize this kind of boutique genetic engineering could very quickly create a society where discrimination is no longer based on sex or the color of your skin, but it's based on the code within your genes. So let me give you a couple examples of what this could look like. Right now, when you apply for a job, generally speaking, you need to have some knowledge going into that job, right? You need to have gone to school, and you need to have gotten a background in it, right? I mean, that's generally how it works, or you need to have experience as an apprentice. In this new world, they may not hire you based on your schooling. Maybe a company looks at your code and they want to know, do you have that specific 52 gene combination for intelligence? If you have it, you got the job, great. If you don't, we don't want you. Could also impact the way we do insurance. So for instance, medical insurers may not insure you if you haven't gotten rid of all your genetic diseases because you are too much of a liability at that point in time. Yeah? Can see that happening. How about getting a loan so that you can buy a house? What if banks all of a sudden, they stop looking at your credit score and they start looking at your genes because those are the things that are going to enable you to be able to pay back that loan because that's how we run our society. You see, as much as the CRISPR system has the ability to change the potential of our world in great ways, it also opens the door to be able to change our world in ways that many people fear. But that said, I want you to understand something, and this is really important that you hear this. This is not a matter of if this is going to happen. It's simply a matter of when. So you can sit there all day long and you can say, this is wrong, this is not the way God intended it to be, 
And I hear you when you say that, but that's just not reality. The fact is, this will become our reality in the next couple of decades. So what this means is that humans are on the cusp of being able to do something really, really incredible, which is that we are now in a place where we can actually direct our own evolution as a species. Nothing has ever done that before on this earth, and we're about to do that. Now, many people would sit there and they would say, well, then Christianity has no place in the world at that point, right? Like, we're completely irrelevant. I would disagree. I actually think, as a result of this technology, we are more relevant now than we have ever been. There's this wonderful quote. I love this quote. It's by the psychiatrist Willard Galen. And he says, I not only think that we will tamper with Mother Nature, but I think Mother wants us to. Now, I actually really subscribe to this idea. I think God created us to be smart enough to be able to manipulate our own genome. I think that God intended for us to do that. And the most beautiful thing about this is that I actually think this is a really big part of us being able to create God's kingdom on earth. This technology is the answer to the miracle that Jesus asked of us 2,000 years ago that seemed impossible, but now is on the verge of becoming a reality. With CRISPR, we're about to walk on water. Now, the question we have to answer is, where do we draw the line, right? Where are the boundaries? What do we accept as being a correct manipulation, a manipulation that is acceptable to us, versus a manipulation that is unacceptable. And the beautiful thing is that when you ask this question in light of the gospel, when you look at it through the lens of the gospel, you get some very clear answers to this question. So one of the ways that Jesus describes God's kingdom is as a place where everybody's on an equal playing field. We all know this, right? Okay, so let's apply this to the CRISPR technology. So let's say that a manipulation becomes available. Let's say that we can use CRISPR to get rid of type 1 diabetes. That's the one I think that everybody would be like, yeah, we should definitely do that, right? Now, using Jesus' way of thinking about it, what this means is that if the manipulation is available, you have to make it available to everyone. It does not matter if you have the money or you don't have the money, everybody should be able to get it. Because remember, in God's kingdom, everyone, and I do mean everyone, is on the same page. Now think about what that means. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about you're looking at these gene therapies as a right as opposed to a privilege. Big difference between those two things, a right as opposed to a privilege. And think about how that changes the way this technology impacts our world. Because if you come up with a gene therapy for type 1 diabetes and everybody has to have it, well, first of all, what happens? It slows down the implementation of this gene editing process, which we need. We need to go slowly with this. Because if we go too fast, things can get out of control quickly. And two, what also happens is it means that people who have resources will not get too far ahead of those who don't have resources. Because if we don't implement this rule, I mean, just think about it. You don't use that rule that I just came up with, right? Everybody gets it. What's going to happen? Very quickly, you're going to have this minority of superhumans who have these incredible genomes while everybody else lags behind. And it all comes down to money. All right, what's another way that Jesus talks about God's kingdom? Jesus talks about God's kingdom as a place where everybody cares for everyone else. Now, I think 
that this is perhaps one of the most important ways that we can alter our genes, which is that think about if you could change human beings to literally create a more altruistic society. So what if we could manipulate our genes in such a way that we could be more giving and less selfish? I think that could change the world in dramatic ways. All of a sudden, just think about that. Think about what could happen if you could do that. You wouldn't have millions of people starving. You wouldn't have a situation where people didn't have a roof over their head. You wouldn't have people dying from war and violence. Why? Because if you edit our genes so that we care about each other more, then the fact is that type of suffering gets eliminated because we are simply not going to stand for it. Right now, we have a small minority of people in our world who are willing to sacrifice a lot to help people. But the vast majority of us are not willing to do that. But if you can flip that, if you get the vast majority of people who are willing to make the sacrifice, then all of a sudden, you are in a situation where we see people starving, we work together to fix it. Because we could do that right now if we wanted to, couldn't we? Absolutely we could, but we don't have the will or the desire to do it because we tend to be focused right here as opposed to being focused out here, which is where Jesus wants us to be. We are living in a time where miracles are about to become a reality, my friends. And what's important for us as Christians is to make sure that these miracles are being used in the right ways. And so here's my prayer for you today. Why I've taken all this time to tell you about this, because we're talking about miracles, talking about what Jesus did. We're talking about the miracles of what's happening today. I hope that you will be part of the conversation, because over the next years and decades, we are going to be having a lot of discussions as a society about these gene editing technologies. And many, many Christians are going to use this as a platform to say we shouldn't do it at all. They're going to stand up and say, it's not right. God should be in control of our genes. And I hope that we will be on the other side of that discussion and we will welcome this technology as a way to bring us one step closer to creating God's kingdom on earth. What is important for us, though, is that we follow in Jesus' footsteps and we make sure that this technology becomes a right rather than a privilege. And when we do that, we truly do create the miracle of God's kingdom on earth. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.